Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today on Democracy Sausage, with Mark Kenny away in the UK, I, Darren Lim, will take a look at the recent controversy surrounding the National Basketball Association and China which raises questions of free speech and Chinese censorship, and more broadly what role companies should play in contributing to our democracy versus guarding their bottom line. Then, calling in from the middle of the night in England, Mark talks us through the latest Brexit drama, with Boris Johnson's shiny new Brexit deal facing the scrutiny of the UK Parliament, and again, things ending in stalemate. Hello and welcome to the Democracy Sausage podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And as you may have noticed, I am not Mark Kenny. Mark is currently on assignment in the United Kingdom and will be calling in to the podcast for the second session to talk about Brexit and all the craziness that's happening over there. So today I am your guest host. And with me here in studio is Dr. Jill Shepard, my colleague from the School of Politics and International Relations. Hi, Jill. G'day, Darren. And Nathan Natural, a PhD student here at the Crawford School. G'day, Nathan. Hi, great to be here. So because I've got the reins for the podcast this week, we get to talk about whatever I would like to talk about. And I decided that we should have a discussion about democracy, of course, being the Democracy Social Podcast, but also corporate social responsibility and China, something that I focus on in my own research. And so we're going to talk about the NBA and the recent controversy um, between the National Basketball Association in the United States and the Chinese government. And this story begins a few weeks ago with a tweet that was sent by an NBA executive, the general manager of the Houston Rockets basketball team, whose name is Daryl Morey, who tweeted the simple phrase, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. At the time he tweeted that, the NBA was on the road bringing pre-season games to Japan um, before opening the season in October. But what was quite interesting was that the NBA was scheduled the following week to bring some pre-season games to China. And two of the biggest teams in the league, the Los Angeles Lakers uh, and led by LeBron James and the New Jersey Nets, were scheduled to play these games in China. So after Maury sends this tweet, he deletes it a very short time afterwards. And then the owner of the Houston Rockets issues a statement saying that, you know, Maury wasn't speaking for the basketball team and the NBA didn't want to involve itself in politics. Then the NBA itself issued a statement defending Maury's right to, a, to free speech, but then also sort of expressing regret um, that, you know, the feelings of the Chinese people had been hurt. And they issued these statements in both English and in Chinese. And the Chinese version was much more groveling um, than the English version. Adam Silver, who is the commissioner of the NBA, sort of the lead executive, then gives a press conference in Tokyo defending Maury's right to free speech, um, acknowledging that the tweet had upset many people inside China and the Chinese government and accepting that there would be consequences, but insisting that his employees had the right to free speech. And so this sort of brings a lot of interesting issues, you know, it coalesces them all in one particular issue, space because you've got questions about social, corporate social responsibility and what um, 
corporate companies, entities, um, and leagues like the Basketball Association should be doing in the social justice space. You've got questions of geopolitics, US versus China rivalry, and you've got sort of larger questions of democracy. Because in response to this tweet, China reacted quite um, harshly cancelling um, the televising of the two games that were being held in China. And you, there were these sort of um, images of, of workers ripping down banners of LeBron James from walls and sort of making um, sort of the hurt feelings of the Chinese people known. Individual players lost endorsements with China. Um, and it's quite, and uh, Houston Rockets games, the team for, of Daryl Morey, um, have been announced that they will, won't be shown at all um, on Chinese TV this season. But of course, China is a massive market for basketball. Over 500 million people watched a basketball, an NBA basketball game last year. So there's a lot of commercial interests at stake here. But of course, this also set off a massive you know, firestorm in the United States because people were very upset that the Chinese government was looking to censor an American citizen for expressing his freedom of speech on a platform, it should be noted, that is banned in China. Twitter is obviously unavailable to access in China unless you have a VPN. And so you had this remarkable uniting of the American political spectrum from the far left and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the firebrand liberal um, congresswoman, and Ted Cruz, the very conservative uh, senator from the Republican Party, all expressing sort of uniform outrage that the NBA had done anything to censor itself, to express any regret, um, and you know, insisting that US companies should be upholding US values. On the Chinese side, you had some very clear statements, um, first from uh, Chinese television, from CCTV, which I'll quote, we believe that any speech that challenges national sovereignty and social stability is not within the scope of freedom of speech. And then from the tabloid Global Times, you had the following statement. Respecting customers is a universal business rule. Maury has to choose between safeguarding his individual freedom of speech and protecting the rocket's commercial interests by respecting the feelings of the Chinese fans. When he opted for the former... The Rockets will have to make a second choice from the perspective of the team. This, of course, implied that they expected Maury to be fired. And indeed, in the past few days, Commissioner Adam Silver stated publicly that there was a request from the Chinese to dismiss Maury, which he, of course, refused to do. And then if we add a third perspective, so we have sort of outrage in the US political system, we have outrage on the Chinese side, and then we have the corporate perspective, and that was possibly best encapsulated by the NBA's most famous basketball player, LeBron James, who gave you know, a press conference of sorts and was very upset about what had happened. And of Maury said, quote, I believe that he wasn't educated on the situation at hand when he spoke. And then he added, we do all have freedom of speech, but at times there are ramifications for the negative that can happen when you are not thinking about others and you are only thinking about yourself. So with all that context, that introduction, can I ask my first question of you, Nathan, as our resident China expert, can you talk us through the perspective of the Chinese government here? I mean, this is not the first time they've targeted individual companies. Why do they do this and what do they hope to achieve? Well, this is what cancel culture with Chinese characteristics look like. Right? <laughs> so, uh, and just like in the West, it's not new. Uh, it's largely social media driven, and it can also strike at any time. So perhaps I'll give you some f a few examples. So the different types of companies that have been affected by this have been mainly fashion brands, airlines, hotels, and entertainment companies like Disney, for example. 
and the topics in which they are cancelled over uh, are the Hong Kong protests, obviously, uh-huh. um, even implicit recognition of Taiwan as an independent country, um, anything to do with the Dalai Lama or Tibet, um, and not recognizing uh, the People's Republic of China's territorial claims in the South China Sea, East China Sea, and sometimes uh, any sort of perceived slight against Chinese people or Chinese culture. So some things that have happened only in the recent past have been Say, for example, on Hong Kong, uh, Cathay Pacific has had to fire some employees for their support of the protesters. Uh, Vans, the shoe company, um, had a design competition in which somebody submitted something that was in support of the protesters, so they had to be, they had to grovel and apologize as mm. well. Uh, Tiffany and Co. had a poster in which a woman was holding her hand over her right eye, which was seen as a, a symbol of police brutality. Except that picture was taken before you know, the woman was injured in the Hong Kong protests, yes. I think. <laughs> Some of these are quite, um, uh, I would say, quite absurd and yes. petty. Yes. Uh, on Taiwan, the Sheridan Hotel in Stockholm um, received a phone call from the Chinese ambassador and they had to cancel their Taiwan Day event, um, otherwise there would be severe repercussions. Apple uh, blocks the Taiwanese flag emoji on all its products purchased in Taiwan or uh, in Hong Kong or China. And on territorial claims, ESPN, which is owned by Disney, in fact had a, a – recognized the, the territorial claims in the South China Sea, in fact giving China a tenth dash line yes. instead of the traditional nine. Yes. And even, I, yeah. I saw also there was this movie, Abominable, a kid's movie, yes. um, that has the nine-dash line on a poster. Mm. Um, it's sort of in, in a side scene. So, so even when they do – What's the nine-dash line? It's the China's territorial claim over the South China Sea. They they take a, take a map and they draw nine lines, nine dashes, that pretty much ring the entire South China Sea, um, and they say it's all theirs. There was a brief moment in Beijing in about 2012 when she couldn't buy any maps because they were being reprinted to make sure they all had this nine-dash line included. So, so, so something that you guys both have said, and I've and I've – like I know I've raised this sort of with each of you before, but Nathan said it again today. Like these companies had to respond, mm-hmm. right? Like um, the hotel in Stockholm had to cancel its 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 event. This shows you the power imbalance, right? I know that we're talking about, um, you know, about the sort of the the corporate social responsibility of companies and all of these things, but they all stand down, right? Mm-hmm. They all stand down in the face of China. They don't have to, but they decide to. And what's different, I think, here is that the NBA has been a little bit bolshier in in some regards. In the NBA being the leadership of Adam Silver has been. I mean, yeah. he has been fairly strict, uh, strident in his defence, albeit not supported by his players necessarily and the owners. I mean, the uh, an owner, another owner. Uh, of the New Jersey Nets, Joe Tsai, who was in Brooklyn Nets. Jay Z stopped listening because he moved the Nets to Brooklyn. <laughs> That's true. I'm displaying my age here. Went back when they were the New Jersey Nets. But the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, uh, who was an executive at Alibaba, I believe, mm-hmm. um, oh, wow. and a Taiwanese Canadian citizen, issued a statement which really did parrot, you know, the Chinese line mm-hmm. um, in criticizing in criticizing Maury. So Silver, as the executive, is making a strong statement, but he's not necessarily got the support. But you think this is a good example of, of a company actually upholding U.S. values here? Well, I think the NBA is so torn, right? Because, and I know Nathan loves to say, like, corporations aren't our woke friend. You know, they're not. <laughs> yes, they're not. I can't say, I need some moral guidance on something. What does the NBA say? Like, that's not what corporations are kind of meant to do in a, 
you know, capitalist society which we're in. But on the other hand, there is this sense with the NBA that they are supposed to uphold American values. Mm. And I think, did you say like AOC actually said that? Yeah. Like Ocasio I, taught, she, she issued said, a statement, yeah, uh, sort of supporting Daryl Morey's right to freedom of speech. Okay, so right to freedom of speech is a little bit different. You know, if we accept that that's a kind of liberal democratic value, then sure. But we also have embedded in this this kind of implicit assumption that that companies are supposed to provide moral guidance, and that's a strange shift. So is it – and this is what I was going to ask you, Jill. It's a strange shift, but is it a necessary one? You know, is it impossible to be neutral today in today's world um, and just focus on the bottom line? You know, companies are finding themselves thrust into these issues, sometimes because their staff push them to do so. If we think about, uh, you know, the gay marriage debate here in Australia, there were many companies that spoke publicly in favour of that, um, and their argument was this is where our staff are, um, not just our, our customers. Um, but in in a, in a global context with China, um, you know, a huge economic opportunity for companies, but that comes with strings attached, which then you know get you in trouble domestically. So, what's the you know what's the answer here? Are companies more required? You know, does corporate social responsibility now extend to protecting democratic freedoms like the freedom of speech? Well, I think. Nathan's list of examples of companies standing down in the face of China shows that they absolutely don't, right? I'm pretty cynical. I think that companies do these things, you know, take these moral stands when it suits them, when it's easy, when the costs are are relatively low. We're in this kind of two-speed economy, I think, in Australia and and around the world in similar countries in terms of public opinion, social attitudes, sort of progressive values. So, at the moment, if we look at the Australian public, we're far ahead of the legislature, we're far ahead of the parliament, the government, and this isn't just because it's a coalition government, this is just that our parties are kind of these lumbering beasts who take a little mm. while to catch up to public sentiment on a lot of things. So I think, you know, if you're looking at sort of elite institutions in Australia at the moment, there is a kind of void for progressive leadership. The the Parliament isn't inspiring us on many social issues. It's not leading the way. So maybe we do look to companies to do that, and that's problematic. God, I'm woke and problematic today, and we're cancel culture. <laughs> I know, right? What's happening? Um, Mark needs to come back. <laughs> um, I think that's a real problem, right? Because companies aren't there to do that, right? By design, they're there to make money for their shareholders or for their, you know, investors. Um, And that's fine. That's sort of what we're used to. If we do start looking to corporations for, for moral leadership, we will only be disappointed when China threatens their, you know, their audience share and they have to stand, I'm doing it too now, and they end up standing down. Is there a difference, um, Nathan, in Mm. in this context that it's not simply that you have this, you know, two sides of a debate, you know, Mm -hmm. like on gay marriage, we have those who are for it and those who are against it and companies might choose to insert themselves. But you have an actor in China who was, you know, you know, Aggressively prosecuting its own particular position, mm. um, um, with a behind, you know, with a political system behind it that is very different to ours. And so, is you know, is if we sort of take Jill's line of thinking that um, we're going to be disappointed um, and we shouldn't expect them to do so, does that is that changed by the fact that you've got this other force that's really pushing them in a particular direction? Mm. Um, and the argument would be here that. That companies or perhaps governments, um, you know, um, have a, a responsibility or should at least, you know, should be um, actively responding to that 
um, and taking positions in the the China context, not because they are it's a question of corporate social responsibility, but it's a question of of, of geopolitics mm. um, and defending a system against a different set of values. And different companies will have different leverage as to what they can do, whether they can promote these particular values. So I think the reason why the MBA is different is because it's selling a product in which there are no easy alternatives for the Chinese consumer to buy, right? Yeah. So if all the other things that have been cancelled, uh, high-end hotels, airlines, and fashion brands, mm. um, not a lot of Chinese people are buying Dolce & Gabbana and Louis Vuitton, unless they're knockoffs, perhaps. Um, but the NBA is so, and basketball is so beloved in China that I think for the first time, uh, uh, an American company being challenged on these sorts of things actually does have a little bit of leverage. And so this is why the, the debate is happening about this particular issue. And the timing helps as well. So we've had several months of the Hong Kong protests mm. and images coming out about that. And finally, American politicians starting to have opinions about that. Um, so I think Ted Cruz was mm. recently in Hong Kong, yeah, <laughs> uh, showing up at different events, uh, and sort of also the longer, more medium-term decoupling of the American and Chinese economy, which is actually a bipartisan issue in the United States. So I think Americans are also looking for something in which they can all come together around, mm. which is sort of mm. bashing China, trying to silence their beloved NBA and basketball players. I mean, the other point is the Rockets aren't a dud team. Like, they're probably – well, last year they arguably were the best team on paper. It, when, you know, when James Harden starts averaging 35 points a game, you know, because he's a gun. Um, Nathan's looking at me like, yeah. <laughs> like you're talking about sports and on. I wasn't here for this. <laughs> um, they're – I mean, I don't know. Did Chinese consumers actually push back? Will they make their voices heard and demand to see Rockets games again? Um. Uh, already you've seen – so Tencent owns the streaming rights to NBA games. Yeah. And they're already trying to – well, there were fans asking for refunds and they didn't want to give those refunds back. So they're, they're a very powerful company in China. So they're trying to push to be allowed to re-air some of these games. And you also had the spokesman at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, making statements such as sport should be used as it always has to bring the American and Chinese people together. So already you're seeing okay. a little bit – of a back down, although it's often attributed to the Chinese government realizing they look silly in this situation. I don't think that's necessarily the truth. I think it is that the NBA does have that leverage that these other companies didn't have at all. And that this is where actually the NBA looks like it might not necessarily win a fight in this, but drag this out and potentially have repercussions when in 2022 Beijing hosts the Winter Olympics mm. and could we have boycotts then, for example? Yeah, okay. Um, does, so that gi- does that give companies then that have leverage a special responsibility? Is that what the, the implication is? Darren's desperate is? for us to say, yes, corporations <laughs> need to have a soul. No, I'm too cynical. I, <laughs> I, that's not what they're for. The corporations are structured more like the Communist Party of China than they are democracies. That's why CEOs and Chinese leaders get on so well. They can click their fingers and somebody will bring them some water. So I, I very much doubt they're going to be guided by some new sense of you know, morals or liberal values. I, I don't think that's what they're for. What do you think, Jill? No, I don't think so either. Don't look to me for, you know, some kind of robust debate here. I I, I am with Nathan entirely. Um, what, I've, what I am interested in, though, and I guess I was sort of trying to tease out then, is the sense of agency of the Chinese people because we talk about them as though they don't – well, we don't even mm. talk about them. Right, we say that you know Xi has sort of um, commanded this from on high, and, mm. and we're not going to see rockets games in China now. 
but I, I, I'm really interested in how Chinese people feel about this and whether they have any agency in actually being able to get the government to overturn that. And so that's really interesting, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we know that they are, you know, they are very proud. Um, mm -hmm. um, but we also know that they have been conditioned by decades of, of patriotic education and a very strict censorship regime. And so this is something that China watches always grapple with. You know, the, the acknowledgement that, by and large, the Chinese government does have a lot of support. Um, has done remarkable things in terms of lifting the country out of, of um, you know, in, in terms of economic development. But equally, knowing that we we can't observe what they really believe because. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because of the repercussions of doing so. So I guess we have to read the tea leaves. And, and, and as you said, Nathan, the fact that the Chinese government has, has been, has moved, taken a step, step back from the, the brink perhaps suggests that, that they are aware that going too far would be too much. But then again, the, we saw a few days ago when Silver made this public comment that he had been requested by someone on the Chinese side to fire Mori, um, that that re re in turn sparked a reaction from Chinese media mm -hmm. um, in which he was sort of directly threatened you know, by Chinese state media. So we, this story may not be over yet. Um, and of course, the, the big sort of, I guess, the own goal by the Chinese side is this has um, activated um, you know, political opposition amongst the NBA community in the United States so that people are wearing T-shirts and bring posters and mm -hmm. signs and so forth um, to games, which is just going to only spread out you know, spread out this issue over the long time and, and, and keep it in the forefront of the, of the consciousness of the conscience of the, of the American um, public. Uh, and so I think that China is going to have to be dealing with this and thinking about whether they want to respond again and again and again, uh, in the months ahead. It strikes me that, 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 you know, as someone who studies, um, you know, bilateral relations between Australia and China, the Australian government is also in a similar situation in our, overall policy orientation towards China as the NBA in that we have a set of values and interests, some relate to the US alliance, some relate to our own democracy that are in tension with the fact that we sell so much stuff to the Chinese and that's a strong pillar of our, of our economic prosperity. Can we learn anything um, from what the NBA has done here um, <laughs> about, about managing China policy or indeed just how we talk about China in, in, the, in, in, in this country? I mean, there was a, an entire Q&A segment devoted to Chinese foreign interference, and we'll get to universities in a minute. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, it's it's always in the press. Um, politicians are constantly being asked. Some do better than others, and in, in how they and how they describe what Australia's position is. But like, we're looking for new insight here. Can we learn something from from this from this episode? Maybe don't have your corporations be the one doing almost all the engaging with the Chinese people. Don't uh, who corporations obviously have an incentive to want Chinese people just to be consumers. They're not particularly interested in their opinions about things either. Um, maybe it is time for political leaders and maybe us as individuals um, to start promoting these liberal values that we apparently want our corporations to do. I think domestic governments, like in, in you know Western liberal democracies, are going to get really wedged by this at the moment. We've seen huge decreases in public support for China and the relationship with mm. China in Australia um, over several different surveys, and, and it's pretty robust now, I think. Uh, I imagine that the US is finding similarly. This is, you know, not something that I think the Australian government's had to worry about much because we they almost had their imprimatur because of the the resource income to do what they like on China. And I think for the first time, Australians are starting to 
Uh, it's becoming a more salient issue, right? They're starting to actually think about what this means for us. Now, does that have racist connotation? You know, it, it, potentially racist implications. Absolutely, mm. right? Does it? Does it mean that we may, you know, have to start kind of thinking about how we? Um, you know, how the leadership in Australia talks about, for instance, uh, Chinese students, mm. um, the Chinese people generally, which again, and even talking about the Chinese people is, is pretty offensive, right? So it's, it's really, really tough for governments. I don't know how this plays out. And we, of course, are sitting here in a university and the universities are on the front line of this. You know, we take a lot of students from mainland China. They're an important source of revenue. Um, but we have been thrust into this debate with the Four Corners episode uh, last week, which was talking about potential for foreign interference and, and training students to return to work for the Chinese military. Uh, our vice chancellors and, and leadership groups have to have to navigate this this issue as well. We have a foreign interference task force that's being run um, by the education minister. I, I you know I I don't really have a particular you know uh, comment here, but just are universities a different category? I suppose to profit-making organisations, you know, do, is there a special responsibility um, that you, that pushes universities more towards the need to stand up to China, or uh, is you know the need to you know fund education in this country um, as important as, as LeBron James making another few million dollars? I think universities would like to think that they have some sort of responsibility to promote free inquiry, free speech, um, but they are also uh, in need of funding and a good source of funding is international student fees. So that in that sense, they are in a similar position to some of these for-profit corporations in that uh, there, there was a sort of grand bargain of, you know, keep, keep quiet about these big issues and we'll keep the students coming. Although I don't think the Chinese government has that sort of ability that is often attributed to them that they can stop the flow of mm. Chinese students coming to Australia. I don't think that's something that's actually real. Um, they can recommend perhaps going to other countries, um, but that's as far as they can go. But I do think universities would like to think that they have some sort of special um, role in promoting liberal values. My fairly Pollyanna-ish kind of view on this is that, uh, well, yeah, it, universities probably feel like we have this special role, but if we take it down to the base at a most cynical level, they are just trying to bring in students, you know. Mm-hmm. As students consumers, well, no, but they're still buying things that we're selling. And if education is an export industry, which it legitimately is, then mm-hmm. there are sort of positive externalities to to selling education. And that if that is for a mainland Chinese student that you spend three or four years in Canberra or in Sydney or in Melbourne, that's probably pretty good. Yeah. Right? Um I mean, when I teach, you know, international students from anywhere, I find that they kind of love it here and they're mm. happy to be here. Mm. And so this sense that, you know, they're, they're all here against their will or mm. uh, they're here at the bidding of the Chinese government or something yeah. is patently untrue, <laughs> right? I mean, that's – but this is an easy stereotype to take hold and, and especially in this uh, environment where you have things like – you know, the Chinese government trying to cancel the MBA. I think for an average Australian who's not thinking about China deeply, and hey, that's me, right? Let's be fair. Um, who's not thinking about China on a day-to-day basis, and you just dip in and out of of thinking about China, it does look really grim, right? And it's easy for these... Uh, 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Pretty base narratives to take hold. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I've got one more question, and this is to bring it all the way back around to censorship at the be- um, that we began with, which is to talk about Hollywood um, and the fact that it, yeah, it's I didn't even really hadn't even really thought about this before, but it's yeah, it seems obvious now in retrospect that of course no Hollywood movie gets made by a big budget studio that's mm. going to upset China. And one of the the discussions around what LeBron James was saying is that is because he has Space Jam two coming out, you know, which <laughs> I'm, we're all very excited about. <laughs> um, to you know, the, as the heir apparent to, to Michael Jordan's first Space Jam, uh, and he wants that film to be licensed uh, in China. It would make a lot of money there. You know, for both of you, does it bother you, um, you know, that uh, film studios and, and media production companies in particular um, are, you know, following the bottom line logic here um, and, and, and self-censoring, um, you know, entertainment in this instance? Like, is, it, is this something that we should be concerned by or is this, as you have both said, companies doing what companies do? Well, it does concern me, and thank you for the words back at me. Companies do what companies do, <laughs> yes. Um, the fact that a company like Disney, for example, owns so many different franchises, so it owns Marvel, Lucasfilms, it just bought 20th Century Fox. I'm so I'm so <laughs> upset that Marvel's being censored. Yeah, well, the only way some of these movies can even make the sort of money they can is because they have access to the China market, which lets in, I think it's now 30 foreign films a year. Mm. Um, and there was, I remember reading something about how studios will now send the scripts directly to the censoring uh, ministry in yeah. China before it even, they even get approval to make the film, just to make sure it's going to get a release. Um, so, yeah, I think the meeting of, of capitalism and art has always been an interesting um, dynamic, as it is the meeting of capitalism and sport, right? Um, and so I guess this is why... We're having a debate about this because there's no easy answer to what should be done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're looking to mainstream art to try to, you know, subvert um, the geopolitical order, then we're probably looking at the wrong place, right? I This doesn't bother me so much. I Again, maybe it's my really Pollyanna-ish kind of view, but that this, you know, this will pass. I, I just don't think you can you – can, okay, here's my extremely hot take on China um, and modernisation – can they really put the genie back in the bottle, right, with China? Can you expose the Chinese people to global forces and global trades and information and money and art and sport and really think that this is a sustainable situation at the moment? It's the greatest experiment in political you know, nation-building history uh, because all of the evidence would suggest that you can't. Um, what happens when you take um, when you take the Houston Rockets games out of China? Well, they, right? try, they tried that in the 1950s and 1960s, and it made China the poorest country in the world by the yeah. late 1970s. Poorest because they won't get rockets games. Because they kept games. the Chinese people away from the world yeah. and its horrible influences. Yeah. 
Look, that's as as a as a very non-China watcher, right? I study Australian politics and public opinion. I I just have this sense that we're agonising over something that will pass. The next G won't be G, you know. Yeah, it's a. I mean, that is the the question that underlies, all, I think, all of the China debate that they their model of of politics and economics um, has never succeeded to bring any country to the wealthiest phases of economic mm. development, unless you're a small petro state you know, mm. in the Gulf somewhere. Um, and so, you know, the evidence suggests that as people get wealthier, they demand more freedoms, that, you know, they demand more liberties. Um, and as you said, Jill, as they're exposed to the, to the outside world, that's also another force for, for liberalizing. And so the Chinese Communi- Communist Party, however, believes that these forces, um, are forces of instability and that they are going to try to keep a little of them, a little of them indefinitely. And if they succeed, they'll be the first in both keeping a lid on them and in becoming a wealthy country, they'll be the first country ever in history to do that. So it's a remarkable political experiment. Um, and the problem is if they fail, that's equally as terrifying as if they succeed. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, it is – there are dark clouds in all directions. But nevertheless, um, at least we have episodes like South Park um, yes. to provide us with some satirical uh, satirical um, you know joy. If, if listeners haven't aren't familiar with that, check out the episode called Band B A N D Band in China, um, which has also been resulted in South Park being cancelled uh, or being banned, you know, blocked in in actually banned in in, in China. Uh, it's a very it's a very funny take, and I think as long as we have these. Um, you know, as long as someone, whether it's a large corporation like Disney or a smaller producer, can can produce satire um, in in a, in, a, in a place like Australia or in the United States, then it's not all bad. They can, can we, still laugh. Can we point out that I can't even watch it because I don't have a VPN, unlike you China researchers, <laughs> and and that America like notoriously won't won't allow videos to be shown in the in Australia. Can't you get it through Foxtel? I don't know if you if it's available. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got have to I got bored and. Stop looking for it. <laughs> okay, well, we'll leave uh, this first segment uh, of the, the podcast here. I want to thank Dr. Jill Shepherd um, and Nathan Attrell, both from the Australian National University, for coming on and talking about this fun issue. Thanks, guys. No thank worries. You. Thanks, Darren. And we'll be back shortly with part two, calling in to or hearing from Mark Kenny in London. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. And welcome back to the Democracy Sausage Podcast. I'm Darren Lim, as I said before, hosting for Mark Kenny this week. But I actually have Mark on the line now, who is over in the UK, observing all of the Brexit drama. Hello, Mark. G'day there, Darren. So it's been a big weekend. Uh, can you talk us through what actually happened and where we are right now? Yes, well, it's uh, it's been another one of these uh, sort of... Um you know, forward and then back or, or, or stalemate kind of uh, situations with Brexit. We know this has been going on for, you know, three and a half years, basically, um, since what was, you know, let's face it, a pretty knife-edge decision by voters back in 
in the uh, referendum three and a half years ago. Mm. Uh, but what was meant to be the you know the decisive moment uh, for Boris Johnson uh, on Super Saturday, a rare Saturday sitting of the House of Commons, first time since 1982 when Argentina had uh, invaded the Falklands. Um, was, um, you know, that was an emergency then, but there, there was an emergency this time, and that was that the, uh, you know, the, the, um, guillotine was lowering, I suppose, on, um, on the, on the whole need to get a deal, that being October 31st, and, uh, Boris Johnson needed a decision out of Parliament by the 19th, Saturday the 19th, or else he was, uh, compelled to, uh, you know, go to Europe and seek an extension. Now, that all looked like it was actually going to happen, uh, as the, um, as the hours ticked down to that Saturday sitting, Boris Johnson had indeed gone back to Europe. He had indeed uh, succeeded in getting them to um, negotiate with him and renegotiate some terms of the uh, the Brexit agreement, which uh, many said he couldn't do, but he had done that. Mm. Not only that, he'd got a um, he'd got a deal out of uh, Europe. He'd got new conditions, which he was arguing at least were were better and. Uh, and he was determined to put that to the Parliament. But as, as has been the case all the way through this, the Parliament has been of a different mind from the government. And so we had this uh, bizarre situation where an amendment was moved to the motion to effectively endorse the deal that Boris Johnson had secured. And that amendment had the effect of... Uh, of um of delaying Brexit one more time, of saying to uh, the executive, saying to the government that the parliament would only approve the deal once the legislation that enables that deal, so there's a fair bit of legislation that goes with it, once that legislation had been seen and turned into law. It makes a lot of sense procedurally, but it was a big, uh, you know, a big setback for, for the government. So, and what was the politics behind that? Was this a particular manoeuvre? What were they trying? What was they trying to achieve with this amendment? Well, as I say, right up until uh, this vote, um, it, it seemed very possible that the government was going to prevail, and that was going to be that effectively. Once the um, once the parliament had agreed to the deal, then um, yes, there'd be further legislation to pass. But uh, essentially, the, the numbers would have been there, and this would have been, you know, the big single breakthrough in this whole tawdry affair. As I say, stretching over years. Um, outside the House of Commons, there were uh, many people marching. I went down there to the march myself uh, in Parliament Square, and and there were, you know hundreds of thousands of people there. It's a bit hard to say exactly how many. Some estimates have it as high as a million. So outside the parliament, there was this huge rally going on. And inside the parliament, uh, the situation was no clearer. And I guess what you'd say really is that um, the people who are pro-Remain or the people who are not convinced that uh, what Boris Johnson says is going to be the case, um, mm. they all came together and decided to enforce these terms. I mean, at the heart of it, what really occurred was, as has happened before, was uh, members of the House of Commons, not just members of the Labor opposition, but even some former conservatives and uh, members of other parties, um, demonstrated that they do not trust this Prime Minister's word. They do not trust Boris Johnson, uh, and they were concerned that um, what could happen is that they could give the agreement for this deal, but that the arrangements mm. wouldn't be put in place uh, in time and that Britain would effectively crash out on the 31st of uh, October, uh, you know, sort of 10 days from now, um, mm. without a deal, that they would effectively end up in a no-deal situation anyway. 
Oh, okay. okay. And so they were basically saying, uh, look, sorry, you can't have the approval for this deal until we've seen the detail of the legislation and had a chance to scrutinise it and then pass it. And then once that's done, yes, we agree that you've got a deal. Because I wondered whether it might have been a further delaying tactic, worried that they might have the numbers, that Johnson might have the numbers. You have the pro-Remain forces marshalling enough support for this amendment to sort of you know, buy, the, you know, buy themselves a bit more time um, to, to strengthen their opposition. But you're saying it was well, more a question both. of trust. I think it's both. Okay. I mean, I think um, obviously uh, the Remain side is playing for time, especially when um, – you know, uh, it looked like it was all going over over a cliff, effectively. Um, but in uh, in Johnson's haste to get all this done, he's really skating over some of the critical details. And uh, mm. this uh, um, amendment by uh, this guy called Letwin was, um, you know, it was an, as I say, it was procedurally completely reasonable to say to the government, "Yes, you can have the approval." I mean, Letwin himself, I think, intends on supporting. Uh, the ultimate um, um, motion to endorse the deal with Europe and proceed with with Brexit, but he just wants the order to be correct. That you know, as I say, for the Parliament to uh, scrutinise the legislation, all of the enabling bills, um, before a deal is agreed to. Um, the devil is always in the detail with these things, and uh, so he was saying that. Obviously, there are other people on the Remain side who are just eager for any delay, as you can expect they would be. I mean, it's like if you're facing execution, you're always going to Take an extra yeah. night of freedom beforehand, and uh, uh, and while there's while there's life, there's hope. I guess uh, there were certainly plenty of remainers who were starting to talk pretty bleakly uh, about their prospects in the lead up to Saturday because it did look like the numbers might be there. What really um, did it for Johnson, though, and has um, you know put him in a very difficult position even going forward from here. Uh, is that um, he's had a massive bust up with the DUP, the Democratic Ulster Party, yeah. the Irish Party that um, uh, you know whose ten votes were absolutely critical. Now, if those ten votes were in his column, he would have won on uh, on Saturday, but um, but they weren't, and uh, that, that they've that, those ten votes are critical to his government's survival. What's really going to be interesting now is to see you know what's the game plan, uh, you know. What is Boris Johnson hoping to do now that he's had yet another big repudiation from the Commons? And that bust up is because, as I understand it, the uh, the New Deal moves the border instead of being one between sort of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. It kind of moves it to the Irish Sea, and so that all the customs checks are going to happen between Northern Ireland and the mainland of the UK. Yeah, and the DUP, of course, is worried that that's the first step in, I guess, Northern Ireland rejoining. Ireland one day. Yeah, if that's the economic true. logic pushes you in that direction. Yeah, they're worried that's true. that this is uh yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. It, it it is that. Um and but there's another critical aspect to it as well, and that is that under the Stormont Agreement, uh it is critical uh for both sides, uh, the Catholic and Protestant communities in Northern Ireland, to have a say on critical matters uh, that affect them. And what this deal does is it Really um, sets from above um, these new arrangements, which will have a you know material impact on their lives, without uh, observing that process. And that I think has particularly uh, enraged the DUP because it is a breach of that uh, fundamental Stormont uh, Agreement condition. And so, what's happening outside? Are the protesters pro Remain? Are they pro Leave? Is it a mix of both? On uh, Saturday, you were there. Yeah, look, it was it was a really interesting uh, rally. Actually, there were some fantastic uh, banners and some not so clever ones, but uh, lots of uh, you know kind of uh, witty lines on 
on uh, on things, uh, plays on words and that kind of thing, and you know the inevitable uh, sort of Boris effigy and uh, and and that sort of stuff <laughs> that you see. But it was it was it was huge. It was it was very kind of peaceful, and I think you'd say that for its size. It was incredibly kind of civilized. It did get very tired up the front. And by the time we decided to leave, uh, me and a couple of colleagues from the Australian Studies Institute, we, we had to sort of pick our way back through the crowd. And I'm not joking. It took probably the best part of 20 to 25 minutes of solid kind of, you know, weaving between people who weaving. were tightly packed mm. just to get to an area where you could sort of, um, you know, uh, we can find any space at all, and and then you know some continued walking after that to get out into a clear space. It was absolutely huge, and when the when the uh, voting on the Letwin Amendment was uh, was happening, this came up on big screens, and there was hushed silence as everyone realised that. Um, or well, many people, I suspect, didn't fully understand at what stage the legis- legislative process was. But even for those who did, everyone knew that if this amendment went down at that point, that meant the numbers were there for, for you know, the endorsement of the of the deal, and that was uh, you know all over all she wrote, um, and um, and so there was going to be either you know tears of joy or or relief uh, or or tears of sorrow, and uh, in a classic you know, thing that almost was, you know, the only thing you'd imagine would happen in Britain. There was this huge climax. There was this silence of this massive crowd watching these screens all around as the as the uh, tellers had handed in their votes to the speaker and it was just about to be announced and then suddenly <clears throat> everything went off because it was raining. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was raining a little bit in, and uh, it looked like some water had got into the electrics and just, you know, total oh silence. Oh, gosh. And uh, the uh, the 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 astonishment on people's faces was was uh, extraordinary. Uh, luckily, it came back on relatively quickly, and uh, uh, you know the crowd was able to be informed that the amendment had got up, and that effectively scuppered um, you know Johnson's attempt to uh, pass the legislation that he wanted, or pass the the motion that he wanted that day endorsing the the deal. So, yeah, it was high drama, you know, with a with a touch of farce thrown in as well. Well, it's the 21st of October today, so it's 10 days until Halloween and this deadline. You know, what What's going to happen next? <laughs> well, it's a good question. It looks like, um, uh, you know, Johnson has since, and the fast continues, of course, because what happened once the Letwin Amendment passed was that that meant that the previous piece of legislation that Johnson government had bitterly opposed, that being the Ben Act, that meant that that Ben Act kicked in. And, of course, that is the act that said that if uh, a deal hadn't been secured and approved by the 19th of October, that being Saturday. Saturday, yeah. yeah the government was um, required, that is the Prime Minister was required, to write to the European Union leadership and seek an extension to the 31st of January. Now, Johnson, as we know, had already said he'd rather be dead in a ditch than seek that extension. <laughs> yeah. uh, he'd, he'd also added to that in numerous different ways in the House and outside, saying that he wouldn't be doing it, that the law did not require him to do it. This raised all this speculation about whether the Prime Minister was going to be in breach of the law. Well, we got the answer you know, late Saturday night when it emerged that um, he's kind of half complied, or not really complied at all. He's photocopied uh, the uh, a section of the uh, of the Ben Act that stipulated what he had to say in the letter and sent that to Donald Tusk the um, the head of the EU of the EU council uh, and he has um, but he has sent appended with it or sent along with it another letter 
saying that he personally does not agree that an extension is required. Now, the law requires him to seek an extension, and there's an argument, a pretty persuasive argument, I think, that by sending that second letter that effectively dissolves the first letter, he has not met his requirement under the law to seek an extension. He's merely sent the uh, the paragraph that is set out in the Ben Act explaining that an extension is required, and then another letter which he has signed, he hasn't signed the first one, the second letter which he has signed on Prime Ministerial Letterhead saying, I don't believe an extension is necessary and I want you to regard that first letter as merely the wish of the Parliament. The wish of the government is that we don't get an extension. So all of this could well end up in the court. Uh, we, we know the courts have been involved in this, uh, this whole process before when the Supreme Court... Um, found 11 judges to nil against Boris Johnson and said that he had prorogued mm. Parliament unlawfully. Mm. There's a high likelihood that uh, we're going to see legal action occur here as well. And uh, lawyers I've spoken to, one uh, last night, a very eminent one, said that uh, he thought prima facie the Prime Minister would be found to have uh, acted unlawfully by sending that second letter. So I think, uh, you know, there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's many things that could happen yet, but almost none of it's surprising anymore. And I suppose, though, it gives cover to the EU. If they want to give an extension, they can use the first letter. And if they want to deny one, they can use the second letter. They could sort of have, they could choose how they interpret this suite of, of documents. <laughs> um, and doesn't the, doesn't the EU still want this to be resolved in a no, without a no deal? Like, they, yeah. I, I feel like they still want to give an extension, um, if one is indeed necessary. Yeah. Well, Emmanuel Macron from France has been pretty bullshy about this in uh, sending signals that he doesn't want to give another extension. Donald Tusk, uh, in, the, um, in the days before the, um, uh, you know, the, the Saturday sitting, had pretty much uh, flagged the same thing. Uh, so there's a sort of a question mark as to what Europe's attitude is. Um, the, the, the general uh, assessment of that seems to be that Europe had negotiated a new deal with uh, Boris Johnson and was seeking to help him with uh, maximum pressure um, to get that deal through rather than have a crash-out situation, but that now, facing the reality of a formal request for an extension, that that extension will be granted. It's hard to know, but mm. I think um, uh, Tusk has said that he'll take a few days to consult with the uh, the other uh, 27 um, EU membership, uh, you know, the, the country member countries, and, uh, and, and get back to Britain. Uh, so, you know, that could take, as I say, a few days. Uh, but I think the, the the most likely outcome is that Europe will grant an extension uh, because if it doesn't, well, Britain's got a real problem. It doesn't have enabling legislation, doesn't have the approval of the parliament and uh, Article 50 expires. And there's no possibility of that, of that right? Like the let win amendment requirements could not be satisfied physically in the next 10 days. Is that correct? Like there, it's either an extension or a no deal at this point? Uh, it does seem to be the case. Um, yeah. I, I'm not, you know, uh, privy to exactly what that enabling legislation would say and how complex it is. I've just mm. taken some advice about that and told that, you know, there could be uh, could be a fair bit of it. There's still quite a lot of uncertainty about what would happen at the moment of a um, of the expiry of uh, the, the partnership. Um, what would happen, for example, to EU citizens who were in the UK at the time? What would their legal status mm. be? Uh, these, you know, these are pretty fundamental questions, and uh, and people yeah. don't seem to know the answers. So, this is a um, an unprecedented situation, and with, you know, spiced with maximum amount of political heat and uh, and and passion and um, you know, posturing, and uh, who knows exactly how it ends, and and more critically, who knows when it ends. 
But I, I suppose based on what I, I'm hearing, sort of the most likely outcome would be that there is an extension um, and then a presumably some kind of – there'll be a national election immediately thereafter and we won't really get resolution until we have we have both of those things happen. Um, well, that's true, although I think uh, I think Labor's line and Labor's firmed up on its uh, insistence on a second referendum. Um, I think Labor's line has to be that an election – could resolve it but is not guaranteed to, whereas a second uh, vote on whether uh, to go ahead with this or to simply remain uh, would, you know, would resolve it. And that's, that's really what Labor has to argue, I think. Now, whether there, whether there is a, um, a growing uh, interest or appetite in the House of Commons for a second referendum is hard to say. Uh, I suspect there might be. Um, the numbers certainly aren't there at the moment, but, um, the longer this goes on, the you know the the greater the impatience of the public, which is in in itself become a factor. You know, there's a real sense in Britain that uh, Britons just want this to be resolved, and people mm-hmm. like Tony Blair are saying, "Look, be careful. You do not take important decisions of state on the basis of just being tired of talking about it, so you're plump for anything. Yeah. This is far too important to do that." Um, but I think there is a real sort of fatigue factor here with people just saying, oh, bugger it, just get it done. If we're leaving, just make us leave, you know. Um, on the other hand, I think there's also a view that the political class has just been simply unable to resolve this, and the simple, quick way to do it would be to actually put it to a second vote. And you could have three options, as some people have adv- advocated on the ballot paper. One would be the simple no-deal proposition. The other would be the simple remain proposition. And the third would be the deal that is now on the table that has been agreed between Boris Johnson and and the EU. Uh, and I think there's a there's eminent logic for that. You just simply say, uh, you know, here's the deal. We know what it's uh, – this is the best arrangement, the best terms that Britain could get out of Europe for a divorce. Do you want to divorce on that basis or would you rather stay? Uh, it seems like a perfect. Except logic. with three options, you're you're almost guaranteed not to get a majority for any of the three options, yeah, and you well, don't I, resolve I agree. the problem at all. I agree. Three <laughs> options is uh, is is probably problematic in that sense. Uh, I, that's just what yeah. I've heard some people arguing, uh, yeah. and I've heard that for some time now. But I heard someone prominent saying it this morning. Uh, so um, we'll, we'll you know we'll see whether it comes to that. But I think yeah, it actually has to come down to: do you want to stay or do you want to go on these terms? Mm. Okay, Mark. Well, it's the middle of the night over there in the UK, so we're grateful for you staying up and, and calling in and giving us an update on the Brexit madness. Uh, and you know, thanks for the opportunity for letting me sit in your chair for, for one <laughs> week, and I'm sure uh, your listeners will, will, will welcome you back with open arms oh, I think uh, you're doing next it, week. I think you're doing it very ably, Darren, and it's, uh, it's good to be on the other end of uh, the microphone for a change, answering questions rather than asking them. It's uh, you know, a chance <laughs> to ramble on. <laughs> okay. Well, take care, mate. Thanks, Darren. Cheers. Okay, that is all for this week's edition of Democracy Sausage. Thanks to everyone involved, Dr. Jill Shepard from the School of Politics and International Relations and Nathan Natural from the Crawford School of Public Policy, both of the ANU. I am Darren Lim, also of the ANU. And of course, Democracy Sausage is a production of policyforum.net, the Australian National University and the Australian Studies Institute coming to you from the Crawford School of Public Policy. We would love for you to get in touch with us with your thoughts either on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, email, which is podcast at policyforum.net, or of course you can join our Facebook group on Policy Forum Pod. 
And of course, if you are interested in some of the discussions that we had on China and foreign policy, you can also check out my own podcast, Australia in the World. Thanks again for your attention, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.